Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, my name is John Torpy and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that brings scholarly expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. Today, we examine the relationship between Europe and the United States in the soon arriving aftermath of the Trump presidency. In order to explore these developments, we're honored to have with us today His Excellency Stavros Lambrinidis, uh, Ambassador of the European Union to the United States. Ambassador Lambrinidis studied economics at Amherst College and received a law degree from Yale. He then worked as a trade lawyer in Washington, D.C. in the early 1990s and then eventually became Foreign Minister of Greece in 2010 in the Papandreou government. He's also served as vice president of the European Parliament and for six years prior to his current post was the EU special representative for human rights. He places a strong emphasis on values as fundamental to the EU-US relationship. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today, Ambassador Lambrinidis. Thank you, Professor Torpy. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much. So first off, uh, I guess the thing on everybody's mind these days is how is Europe doing in the midst of the second wave of the coronavirus crisis? Well, I mean, we are, we are certainly experiencing a uh, brutal second wave uh, with several countries uh, in the EU having to resort to modified lockdowns to help contain the spread. Uh, the good news is that uh, while in some cases infection rates have been uh, as high or higher even than in the first wave, Uh, We have uh, much improved testing, uh, much improved contact tracing, and certainly much improved treatments. And all this has meant that the overall fatality rate is is much lower. Now, you know, the the European Commission, which, uh, you know, is the executive arm of the EU, as it were, is uh, mobilizing all means at our disposal to support 27 member states uh, in tackling um, the current uh, pandemic. Uh, the protection of 450 million citizens, as you can imagine, is our first priority. And, uh, you know, uh, it's interesting. We started out, health is not an EU competence, uh, which is to say, like in your federal system, uh, we have a federalist system and some competences re- remain with our member states and others get um, passed to uh, to the EU. Health is not one of those that were passed, but we found out very quickly when the, the pandemic broke out, that we could not handle this alone. Um, and uh, common courses of action by the EU in public health, in transport, in border controls, in the internal market itself, uh, in trade, were necessary. Um, and I have to tell you, I'm quite proud of the fact that we moved supremely fast on this. Uh, we um, ensured that the EU single market, you know, a big economic uh, free uh, citizen movement, free capital movement, free financial movement area would remain intact. Uh, We secured uh, PPE uh, and therapeutics collectively as the EU. We did not allow our member states to go out in the market and fight it out with each other. 
but instead we made procurement bids uh, collectively for everyone, which allowed us to get a lot of that stuff faster and cheaper than otherwise. Uh, we uh, protected businesses and workers with, uh, with a number of measures, including measures uh, of over 100 billion euros to keep people at work and not to have them being laid off. In Europe, we have a very strong social safety net, so there are real major problems of poor people not being able to be treated for COVID did not exist in Europe. But at the same time, we didn't want to have massive unemployment uh, occurring uh, because we thought that once we recover, it would be very good if the nexus between a worker and their company could be there. Um, and at the same time, we spearheaded a global effort uh, to find a vaccine, uh, which is the best hope uh, for ending the pandemic. And, you know, because no country is safe until every country is safe, it goes without saying. Uh, we have always felt that the global response here was absolutely necessary. We convened major funding conferences, uh, collecting more than 16 billion euros, about 18, 19 billion dollars, uh, to support uh, the international organizations working for a vaccine, uh, whether it's the UN, uh, the World Health Organization. We did so together with, uh, with private, uh, major private donors, such as the Gates Foundation. Uh, and uh, we joined the COVAX initiative, uh, which ensures that in the end of this, when we have vaccines, they will be able to be distributed not just to our own people, which goes without saying we want to do, but also to others around the world. And this is key. Uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, the pandemic developed also in, into a, uh, you know, public relations exercise by some countries uh, who were running around the world uh, spreading disinformation that somehow uh, the West and democracies were selfish, were inefficient, and all those things. Um, but in fact, we are the by far the biggest development aid donors in the world. And today, as we speak, the European Union and our member states have given over 35 billion uh, euros to tens of countries around the world, the poorest ones hit by COVID. Um, you know, so it's supremely important to ensure that we all join that international effort and we send a message that we protect people. Now, I hope that the United States was also joined very quickly the COVAX initiative. Uh, but I can tell you for a fact, when you look at vaccines, uh, that while we're not out of the woods yet, that's, I mean, that's, that's clear. Uh, and we are urging major caution in the run-up to the holiday season. The news of the three vaccines, including the Pfizer vaccine, um, are, um, is supremely hopeful. And the Pfizer vaccine is the classic example, in my view, of how transatlantic cooperation and transatlantic supply chains, including in trade, uh, can make a huge difference in the lives of, of our people. So think about it. Um, in a sense, it was the first shaft of light uh, through the uh, COVID darkness, uh, and it was developed through a transatlantic partnership between Pfizer, a U.S. company, and uh, BioNTech, a German company. The production of the vaccine uh, is taking place in Belgium. Uh, so uh, to my mind, this is a perfect metaphor for the power of the EU and the US coming together to bring some much needed hope uh, and to help uh, the world. Now, finally, if I may say, uh, you know, none of this was easy. 
uh, and we had to completely reorient our thinking in the EU and our spending uh, in double quick time. Uh, so to ensure our economic recovery, uh, which was as important as ensuring the lives of our citizens in Europe, uh, we put together a completely unprecedented new instrument called the Next Generation EU, which is, um, together with our new EU budget, will put uh, in place about $2.2 trillion uh, to the task of building back a greener, a more digital, a more resilient, and frankly, a more fair Europe. And for the first time ever, the EU will borrow collectively on the markets uh, with the backing of all our member states to finance this next generation assistance, uh, which will go to the hardest hit countries. Now, this is EU solidarity in action. And it is, in my mind, supremely important for the US as well. We are each other's biggest trade and investment partners. We create more jobs across the Atlantic by than we do with anyone else in the world. And the faster the Europe recovers, the best thing that will be for U.S. economic recovery as well, and vice versa. So this is not what happens in Europe today when it comes to economic recovery or fighting the virus is not just a European thing. It is fundamentally in the U.S. interest. And what happens in your country in fighting the virus can affect us in Europe negatively or positively. We are just simply inexorably connected in every which way. And fighting this together is the hope for the future. Well, that's very uh, helpful as an overview of the situation. And of course, I want to get back into the issue of transatlantic relations in a moment. But uh, you've raised the issue of the European Recovery Fund, which uh, everybody, I think, agrees is an unprecedented move on the part of the European Union to mobilize uh, inter-European or intra-European solidarity in the interest of resolving the economic issues that have arisen from the pandemic. Uh, But you've hit a roadblock. Uh, the Poles and the Hungarians have uh, decided basically that they're not going to support this for the time being. And I guess the question is, uh, is the European Union going to be able to get past that uh, that difficulty and actually implement the recovery fund that you've just described? It's a very good question. And the good news is that as we're speaking, the issue that arose was resolved. So the, uh, the uh, EU heads and state of go- and government uh, just approved uh, the full uh, EU budget, including the next generation EU, uh, keeping in place the contentious issue there, which is uh, what is called the rule of law conditionality mechanism for the disbursement of EU funds. Uh, what is that? Well, that is a mechanism that was agreed by all member states, uh, including Poland and Hungary. Uh, initially, and that ensures that if there are major violations of the uh, European Union treaties when it comes to fundamental rights, uh, that that would affect the ability of a country to receive those funds. Uh, And um, uh, this is, uh, you know, something that is existential for the European Union. We're not an a la carte union uh, or an a la carte membership. Uh, When when someone signs up, uh, they sign up to fulfill and to abide by the treaties and the founding principles of the EU. And for us in the EU, human rights, the rule of law, uh, is a founding principle. 
Uh, remember, we came out and we were created after the Second World War, after the biggest violation of human rights in recent history, the Holocaust, after uh, Europeans killing each other. Uh, and we decided that the EU would not simply be an economic union, it would be a union of values that define us. And this is why we have managed in the past decades to be the most prosperous, uh, open, free, and peaceful uh, union in the world. And prosperous. Now, that is not negotiable. Um, now, the fact that the German presidency managed, uh, because every six months in Europe we have a different member state uh, holding the presidency of the European Council, the fact that it managed to, uh, to lead to the negotiations that, uh, that ended up with Hungary and Poland lifting the veto uh, while keeping in place the, uh, this mechanism I mentioned uh, is, uh, is a very, very positive signal. I'm very pleased that this budget now is in, uh, is in place, and I'm very pleased that uh, European solidarity and European fundamental values uh, are equally uh, strong now as they ever were. Well, that's in indeed good news, and I'm afraid I was not aware of that. I, I hope I'm not too far out of date, but uh, it's obviously you're about good, you're about forty five minutes about forty five minutes out of date. That's I see. All. Well, I'm sorry about that, but th thanks for bringing us up to speed. You heard it here first, listeners. Um, so, uh, at the same time that you know it's not an a la carte union, as you say, uh, I think that's a useful way of thinking about this. Uh, and the fact that it has expanded over the recent decades. I mean, you've also got this problem of one country that has decided to uh, withdraw, and that, of course, is Great Britain. And these negotiations have dragged on now for you know, a long period of time. And uh, indeed, it's still not really entirely clear that uh, an agreement will be reached and that we won't see a no agreement uh, Brexit. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you see things developing in the Brexit context. Well, we're just a few weeks before the end of the year, and that is when the UK uh, uh, fully leaves the European Union. And so this is a deadline for us to be able to have an agreement for our future relationship. And this is what the intense negotiations that are happening now are all about. In a nutshell, uh, if we want to grant the UK uh, the fullest possible access to the European Union market, uh, and uh, for that to happen, uh, some conditions have to be met uh, for fair uh, competition with uh, EU workers, EU companies that we have to protect. Now, that means in practice that if the UK that has been applying the single market rules uh, for all these decades that it is a member, if it uh, were to decide to uh, continue applying those rules, which uh, its own citizens had considered for decades to be um, very beneficial for the UK economy, and we've seen uh, how much it has grown, uh, then uh, it could have uh, an immediate uh, access to the EU single market uh, with no uh, tariffs, no quotas, uh, and no necessity for border controls. But the more that the UK decides to uh, misalign itself from these uh, standards, uh, the more it will be important to have tariffs and have border controls. It's as simple as that. Uh, take labor rights. Uh, if uh, the UK were to decide to, uh, to have different labor rights than the rest of us in the EU and to reduce those standards, that would give it an unfair competitive advantage against our workers and our companies. So that would require 
you know, uh, counterbalancing measures uh, for, for UK products to come in. Look at environmental standards and, and what have you. That's what, that is what is, is called the level playing field. Uh, there are other issues. Uh, there is a governance mechanism. What do we do and how do we resolve disputes uh, in case that there are disputes in the future relationship? There's also an issue that is outstanding still on fisheries and what kind of access Europeans can have to UK waters and vice versa. And that affects many, many, many communities. So it's a very sensitive political issue. I'm afraid that although the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen spoke with the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson yesterday, um, it is clear that uh, we are still far apart. And so it is possible that on the 31st of December of this year, there will not be a deal. And if there isn't, that means that the UK will be exiting the EU um, uh, in a hard way. Uh, and uh, we are prepared for that. And we've been prepared for a while. In fact, we just came out uh, with an announcement that we are proposing to the UK some temporary measures for the period of six months. If, in fact, we haven't managed to reach a deal, or even if we reach one, we don't have enough time until the 31st of December to have it approved under the processes that, that are very well known in the EU and the UK knows them very well. Uh, and these measures, we you know, would be temporary measures to allow for transport, air transport, uh, cargo transport, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, and a couple of other things, uh, if the UK decides to reciprocate. Now, this is a bad situation. Uh, uh, it, uh, all of us in the EU didn't want the UK to leave. They had a referendum. Uh, they decided with a small majority that uh, that they wanted to leave. That was interpreted by the government of the UK at the time as a binding referendum, although legally it was not. And then since 2016, as you said, the long process began. And it has been a painful process, much more for the UK, I have to say, than for the EU. In fact, the EU member states uh, uh, you know, uh, showed uh, Im immediate uh, and much stronger support for the EU and the EU project. And EU citizens polled over the past four years show every time an increased support for the EU compared to the situation before Brexit. It, Brexit has been a unifying factor for the EU, uh, and it has been, if anything, a very divisive factor, as you know, in the UK, where it brought out a, a huge debate after the referendum of what this all meant for the UK and how it would diminish UK economic and other um, interests. But... This is a, an emotional issue as much as it is a rational one. So engaging in rational conversation hasn't always proved to be easy. Here's the fact. The UK today exports more than 40% of all its goods and services to the European Union market. It exports equivalently only about 13 to 14% of those same goods and services to the US market. It is uh, supremely important economically for the UK to be able to retain the closest possible relation with the EU, and that's what we also want. Because frankly, you cannot defy gravity. Uh, we are next to each other, and we will always be next to each other. And we have been together in the same family for decades, and we share the same values, and uh, in many, many uh, instances, uh, we share the same interests. So... It is a decision to be made now on the part of the UK, how it wants to handle the last days of the negotiation. By, by this Sunday, uh, the European Council, the heads of state and government of Europe, 
uh, will be able to reach a decision one way or the other. So uh, it's a uh, it's a it's a race uh, to uh, to the finish line at the last minute. But technical discussions are continuing as we speak, uh, and uh, I hope we will find a solution. Everyone does. So it so it seems. So all of that gives us a good idea of what's been going on and what is going on uh, on the European side. Now, I do want to get into the issue for which you're really chiefly responsible, namely uh, transatlantic relations. And uh, I, you know, it's been no secret that transatlantic relations have been complicated, tense, might be an appropriate word, certainly at times. Um, and so I'd like to ask you, you know, where you think transatlantic relations are going uh, now that we're going to be seeing the arrival of a new administration? Well, I arrived in this country in March 19. Uh, and um, that's when I began uh, sort of uh, holding this position. Uh, and uh, my work initially, I can tell you, indeed had to deal with uh, with uh, some uh, difficulties, notably on the trade side, uh, where we, we had seen a return uh, to tariffs, uh, tariff wars, uh, unfortunately. And, um, you know, it is no secret as well that the European Union had taken a very different track on uh, several issues of uh, global importance. Uh, for example, in supporting uh, uh, alliances and multilateral cooperation to address major world issues, uh, on the urgency of taking action to mitigate uh, climate change. Uh, that's an area, another area that uh, is very, very big for us. And of course, uh, in dealing with the nuclear threat posed by Iran and uh, insisting on the importance of supporting the Iran nuclear deal that, uh, uh, that uh, had been uh, working uh, uh, exactly as planned and had uh, uh, eliminated Iran's capacity to create a nuclear weapon by the time that the U.S. Uh, withdrew. Now, uh, we are in a different place now. I think the, the, the U.S. is a different place uh, than four years ago. The European Union is a different place, and the world is a different place. Um, this is a time when uh, President-elect Biden uh, is about to take office, uh, and he is a person who has dedicated his life in building alliances to the benefit of the United States and its citizens over decades. And the biggest one of these alliances, of course, is the European Union-US alliance. And the transatlantic alliance, uh, the president-elect has mentioned repeatedly, is something he really counts on. Uh, in Europe, uh, this is seen very positively. Uh, but this is also a different Europe. Uh, this is a Europe that had to, uh, as I said uh, in the past years, uh, take a much stronger, more united uh, position around the world. Sometimes we had to play defense alone uh, to ensure that uh, that things uh, remained in place, um, and uh, and we are much more confident, and therefore a much stronger part of, of partner for the United States than we were in the past. And we recognize that, you know, this is a this is in some ways a Kennedy moment. So um, now that uh, President Biden has won, uh, you know, we're not asking what the U.S. can do for us. Uh, we are asking what it is that we can do as Europeans to strengthen, first of all, ourselves, and through that to strengthen the transatlantic partnership. Uh, so uh, I am uh, very uh, pleased that uh, only last week uh, the European Commission president and the uh, high representative of Europe, Josep Borrell, 
uh, announced a joint communication, in a sense, uh, a proposal of the EU for a new transatlantic agenda for global change. And the emphasis in that agenda, which is a very short document, 11 pages, but supremely rich in concrete proposals, the gist of it is to highlight that the biggest alliance and relationship in the world for Europe is the United States, that in a world that is changing, that different powers, sometimes malign powers, are trying to change the rules of the game, where COVID needs to be addressed now because people are dying now, not tomorrow, uh, and where future pandemics have to be stopped and prevented before it's too late, where the climate is changing and creating a uh, an existential crisis that is multiple magnitudes bigger than COVID, that at this time there needs to be world leadership to ensure that all countries, including the major polluters, uh, declare carbon neutrality, ideally by 2050, uh, when trade can uh, kickstart our economies after uh, COVID as trade kickstarted our economies after the financial crisis, but it needs to be open trade, free trade, not trade that has distorted rules by countries like China. When all this is at stake, this is the time for the EU and the US to come together. Um, our proposals focus on four areas. One is COVID itself. Uh, the importance of uh, the U.S. and the EU uh, joining COVAX, supporting uh, the production and distribution of vaccines. Another one is, uh, you know, the safety of our planet and prosperity. Uh, and there we focus from everything from a uh, green tech alliance between the EU and the U.S., where we focus on what is needed immediately. Uh, storage, uh, grid-wide storage of energy that we don't have today whether through batteries or whether through hydrogen. All these are massive investments, but the EU and the US are the investment and innovation hubs of the world. And if we approach this together, green technologies together, then we will, we will have created ourselves the markets and the economies of scale to ensure that these take over not just our economies, they don't become simply growth engines for our citizens and our workers, but also allow our companies around the world to support countries that are transitioning to uh, climate neutrality like, like we are in the Paris Agreement. Then, of course, we're looking at trade. Uh, and trade is a very big agenda because tariffs have been devastating to both our economies in the past uh, few years. Uh, jobs have been lost in the, in the U.S., not gained. Um, with the tariff uh, war with, uh, with Europe. And of course, our companies and our workers have suffered as well. So, th so we have to deal with the trade irritants at the same time that we look forward to a trade and technology alliance for the future that also addresses major challenges such as China. And there we suggest an immediate convening of a tech and trade council between the EU and the US that would look at everything from setting standards for artificial intelligence in the future uh, to how we coordinate our investment screening mechanisms to ensure that unfair, um, uh, you know, unfairly subsidized companies in China and elsewhere do not uh, come and compete unfairly in our markets or around the world. Uh, and finally, of course, we look at multilateralism and we look at democracy. 
democracy uh, is at stake. It's not a given. There are many countries around the world that are trying to attack it, that are trying to peddle their own forms of government as better. Uh, and at the same time, democracy is the toughest uh, system of governance, really, because it requires every citizen to have the power, the, the, the correct information, and the knowledge to keep governments into account and to make decisions. It's not a system where an authoritarian does that for everyone else by repressing everyone who disagrees with him. And so what happens with big tech? What happens with disinformation? Uh, what happens with uh, uh, hate speech? What happens with ensuring fair competition in the tech space around the world and fair taxation? All these are issues as well that we are uh, fully ready to discuss and to work together with the United States. So um, honestly, we talked initially about Brexit. We talked about uh, internal issues in the EU. And I tried to explain that all these crises have made the EU stronger. But nothing, nothing can make the EU stronger uh, than, a, than a powerful, balanced uh, alliance between two strong partners, the EU and the US, together. Nothing can make the world stronger and safer than that. And so all my energy uh, in the next uh, few months and years will be on achieving that. I see. So, um, I mean, you know, there are those who have uh, raised questions about the extent to which the United States and uh, Europe can sort of recreate the post-war, post-Cold War period. Uh, so I'm intrigued to hear you say that the enthusiasm for that, I mean, it's sort of well known, I guess. Oh, that, no, I'm not, I'm not looking back. I'm not looking back. I do not. Right. I, I don't think I told you the world has changed and we have changed. Right, right. It's, it's, a, it's a chimera to assume that you can create a post-world period. I don't mm -hmm. think anyone wants that. We want a new world that is uh, developing on uh, on the basis of an economic boost from uh, from climate, uh, an economic boost from digital, uh, and uh, and a values boost uh, from uh, renewed uh, democratic uh, presence, where others are trying to take that away. So it's not an old world we are building. It's a it's a much more hopeful new world. Honestly. Uh, that I think we're at the cusp of. We're really at the we are at the historical crossroads here, um, and uh, what the EU and the US do together will determine how this goes. Indeed, but you know, over the past four years, there have been those who have heard people like Angela Merkel say, you know, we have to go our own way essentially, and uh, it sounds like that's not the you know expectation with a new administration. Uh, in in the White House, um, so that's obviously a, an encouraging sort of sign. Um, but there is an issue that I wanted to ask you about, uh, on which the Europeans and and the United States have differed in the last few years, and that's the issue of China. Uh, I'm curious, you know, how you see European and American views of China's place in the world and our relations with it, uh, you know, are they going to continue to diverge or is there going to, you know, be a new common view of how to deal with China? Uh, I, I, I believe so. And I, I don't, uh, I don't necessarily agree with the, with the premise uh, 
that we have been looking at China differently, although uh, clearly uh, the strategies that we have uh, chosen uh, to deal with the problems that we both see China posing have not always been the same. But we both agree uh, that uh, China, in some instances, has to be a cooperation partner. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you deal with climate change, and if you don't think it's a hoax, and if you understand that addressing it now is the only way to avoid uh, a multitude of, you know, both environmental catastrophes, but frankly also economic catastrophes, uh, then uh, you understand that China, which is the biggest carbon emitter today in the world, has to come into the fold. And so we have to coordinate with China uh, and, uh, and uh, ensure that this happens. Uh, when it comes to issues such as non-proliferation, it is very clear that we have to work with China. We have to uh, bring China into uh, into the uh, the fold, and uh, and in many ways, the great success of the uh, Iran nuclear deal was that China and Russia, together with the United States and together with um, uh, the UK, France, Germany, and the European Union, um, found a common language, both of sanctions and pressure, and of persuasion to ensure that uh, China would abandon its nuclear program its weapons nuclear program. So uh, there, is, uh, there are areas that we have to work with, uh, with uh, China, and China is, for both the U.S. and the EU, also a major economy. At the same time, uh, there are elements that we both agree uh, that China is uh, a competitor and an unfair competitor at that. And there, uh, we're working together uh, already uh, to try to see how we can uh, reform uh, rules of the WTO to ensure that some of the elements of those rules uh, get strengthened to, to fight um, industrial subsidization of the mass government scale that uh, China is engaged in so that competition can be fair, to deal with intellectual property uh, theft, to, to deal with uh, you know forced joint ventures, all these things. Uh, and uh, we also, in Europe, because you mentioned before, uh, you know, what, what Chancellor Mer Merkel mentioned. I mean, we also, yes, uh, have in the past few years become much stronger and much more autonomous in our own instruments to address challenges such as these, including through our own investment screening mechanism uh, against investments in Europe that could threaten national security, uh, including on strengthening our own tra trade defense uh, instruments, including on a on a, on a package to mitigate risks uh, from 5G coming from suppliers uh, outside of the EU that um, uh, you know uh, that that are controlled uh, by governments that don't respect our values, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then, of course, we see China together as a systemic rival. China is um, much more aggressive today around the world in exporting uh, not just its, its, uh, its uh, subsidized goods, but also its, uh, its uh, uh, values on human rights, on governance, uh, on corruption, and that's not okay. And that is a rivalry that we both uh, are ready uh, to stand up together uh, and to be able to address. You know, many times when we talk about trade, we talk about how the we, we say we, we focus on the EU-US relationship. Uh, we create about uh, 15 million jobs uh, in both sides of the Atlantic, uh, equally distributed. European companies investing in the US, US companies investing in the EU. 
that is the biggest economic relationship, the biggest beneficial relationship the U.S. has in the world and that, uh, and that Europe has. And it's also supremely fair because if you look at the standards that we use to produce our goods and services, uh, high labor standards, anti-corruption, high environmental standards, um, all these have costs, but they ensure a, a, a fair playing field. Well, every time we put one of our products in one of our containers to export anywhere else in the world, in that container we also put our values. The values are just described. And similarly, China puts in its containers its own values. And so we are very much aware of the fact that what is termed as an economic competition, which is clearly unfair, also brings with it the systemic rivalry that we have as European Union identified in official documents with China when it comes with values. So, you know, that's why we are saying to the, uh, to the next administration, let's sit together and discuss artificial intelligence and set together the standards because we are the biggest standard setters in the world and everything we decide reaches every corner of the world. China today is setting AI standards for AI use in Xinjiang by using face recognition and voice recognition and movement recognition to repress millions of Uyghurs. That is not okay. And it is trying to export the same AI standards with the technologies it sends around the world. That is also not okay. We are the leaders in 5G technology, look at Ericsson and Nokia, European Union companies. And uh, together with the EU, we can sit down and determine what the standards will be. If you take China and connect it again with our own situation, EU-US, I said before that we have to resolve our trade irritants. I hope we can do this very quickly during the, uh, the uh, President Biden's administration. Because we cannot be continuing with the tariff war. Uh, this is getting us fighting with each other uh, and is allowing others, uh, including China, uh, to be almost uh, um, unhindered uh, watching us uh, being divided and conquered. And that's the last thing that we can afford to do. But look at the Airbus-Boeing dispute. This is a dispute that's been going on for decades. Airbus has been found by the WTO to have been subsidized in Europe, and Boeing has been found by the WTO to have been subsidized in the United States. So we both lost our cases. What happened in the past few months is that the U.S. decided to impose tariffs, legal tariffs this time, based on WTO decisions, against EU products for the Airbus case, and not to sit down and discuss to settle the case as we had both lost our cases. And so the European Union had a month ago, uh, regrettably, to impose its own tariffs against U.S. products because we won the Boeing case. Now, I hope that we can very quickly decide to withdraw, freeze our tariffs on Boeing and Airbus on both sides and to sit down and to negotiate a settlement because that settlement has to look also at the subsidy principles of the future for the airline industry and agree on them. You know what's going to happen as we fight? China is building 100% subsidized aircraft 
as we speak. And those aircraft could flood the Chinese market and then the world markets in a few years' time. Now, you tell me where the reason behind the EU and the U.S. fighting on Airbus Boeing lies, given that geostrategic reality. There isn't any. So I, I am confident that when it comes to dealing with China, we'll be able to both work with China where uh, it is important to achieve common goals, that we will be able to address both multilaterally with allies, Japan, Canada, the UK, Australia, others, issues of unfair trade, and that we also will be able together, Americans and Europeans, stand up for our values and ensure that in future technologies, as a po uh, in addition to in future governance systems around the world, democracy prevails. That is what I am working on. Terrific. Thank you very much. This has been a terrific overview of uh, European affairs and, of course, the transatlantic relationship as we go forward into this next administration. That's it for today's episode of International Horizons. I want to thank Ambassador Stavros Lambrinidis for sharing his insights about the future of the European-American relationship. I also want to thank Christo Voinoff for his technical assistance and the Otto and Fran Walter Foundation for their support of our Europe-related endeavors. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us again for the next episode of International Horizons. Thanks very much, Ambassador. Thank you. Thank you very much.